Welcome to DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and the bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by 26 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively for destination marketing organizations and a number of travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions to elevate the overall understanding, strategic direction, and tactical implementation of impactful campaigns. You can learn more at 26digital, all letters, no numbers, 26digital.com. And now it's on to our show. Our guest today is Steve Moore. After 46 years in the destination marketing industry, Steve stepped down from the top spot at Visit Phoenix this summer. Upon his arrival in 2002, he played a key role in the team that led the pro forma and design for Phoenix's new $650 million convention center, securing $300 million of it from the Arizona legislature to build it. Steve was also engaged in the city's development of the 1,000-room, $350 million Sheridan Phoenix downtown hotel. The convention center and the Sheridan both formally opened in 2009, and these two projects were known locally as the Billion Dollar Promise, and it was his daily passion to deliver on that promise. Steve and Visit Phoenix were instrumental in landing three Super Bowls, two men's Final Fours, and a women's Final Four, along with the All-Star Games for Major League Baseball and the NBA. Prior to his arrival in Phoenix, Steve led Visit San Antonio for 14 years, where he helped lure three large resorts and a theme park and booked numerous stadium-sized rock concerts in the then-newly-opened Alamo Dome, as well as conventions, two NCAA Men's Final Fours, an NCAA Women's Final Four, an NBA All-Star Weekend, and also produced eight NFL preseason football games. He also helped lure both the Houston Oilers and the Dallas Cowboys to summer training in San Antonio for the last 10 years of his time there. He began his career in 1975 at the Greater Houston CVB, where he founded the Houston Film Commission, calling on studios in Los Angeles to lure televisions and movies of the week and motion pictures to Houston, including Urban Cowboy and the Oscar award-winning Terms of Endearment. By 1987, he was the executive vice president. He served three terms on the board of what is now known as Destinations International, and he chaired the foundation board in 2009 for its successful $4 million campaign. He has served on other allied boards, such as the U.S. Travel Association, the Arizona Lodging and Tourism Association, and founding board member of Meetings Mean Business Coalition. In 2012, Steve was inducted into the Arizona Tourism Hall of Fame, and in 2015, received the Arizona Lodging and Tourism's Legacy Award. As the outbreak of the pandemic hit through the robust multi-year city contract funding formula, along with years of a board-approved aggressive fiscal reserve practice, Steve was passionate and forceful about retaining all staff with full employment that continues past his retirement. In turn, the Visit Phoenix staff produced a record year of future bookings into the convention center, not counting rebooked cancellations. They also rebranded the organization's marketing campaign, and during 2020, Metro Phoenix's hotel market was second in occupancy and led or was in the top three of the top 25 hotel markets with the least percentage of downturn. Steve Moore, quite a bio. Welcome to DMOU. Hey, Bill. Thank you for having me on today. It was great seeing you at DI last week. It was. It was great to see you, and you were great on stage, as always, in your role uh, in presenting some of the Hall of Fame inductees. 
And I tell you what, for a guy like me who was just getting started in the industry, you may not remember, but no one knew me, no one cared. And I met you at one of your golf outings for the foundation, and you couldn't have been more gracious to this young punk who's coming up. And we'll get to that in one of our questions, but that's just who you are. I mean, you have always been a friend, regardless of size, regardless of, of how long somebody's been in the industry. You've always reached out that hand, and I've always appreciated that. Well, you're an easy guy to get to like, Bill. Well, I appreciate that. All right, let's get to our first question. Our business in destination marketing has only gotten more political since your first days in Houston. Indeed, you had an infamous quote about the only two ways to sleep at night. So let's start with that quote and tell us how you have so successfully steered your DMOs and destinations through shark-infested waters. <laughs> well, I, I think the quote is, the only way one can sleep well at night is to be either fully prepared or totally unaware. I love it. So Bill, you simply just have to be able to smell the train coming because by the time you hear a train coming, it's too late, you can't stop it. And I witnessed a lot of that over the careers of many of us. And a lot of what I learned in the Houston days was, was kind of a lesson of what not to do sometimes. And for example, leaning on one, one or just a few city council people to be your bureau's angel, I, I realized was a mistake. but. I believe that the term means that you've made a, a, literally a promise with the public. You've made a, a covenant with your city that they are allowing you to take the community's brand and go out and do what you can with it to do things that otherwise wouldn't happen. And I believe that that is a, an unbelievable gift and challenge. And I believe it comes with a lot of trust and passion. And I just don't believe one can just uh, take a day off in their mind when a city operates 365 days a year, 724. It's just been a wonderful experience to meet many of the others who I've learned from. I've stood on the shoulders of many people. I'm the youngest dinosaur in the industry because of the people that, that got me where I am, that taught me everything I know. They didn't teach me everything they know, but they taught me <laughs> everything I know. So being curious and being aware and being ahead of the ball is really the essence of it. Yeah. You know, San Antonio, you know, it was a city government job. So I traveled and, you know, dined with the mayors and city council members a lot. So I, I spent so much close time in with them that it was a primer in obtaining backroom intel, you know, as to what would happen months down the road. So you learn to maneuver around challenges before they ever gained momentum. And that's why we talk about smelling a train instead of hearing it. You taught us how to ask the question. Yeah. You know, having a newer, newly elected mayor in San Antonio, you got the word out, one of them, he was going to have me fired, Bill. Uh, his key advisor was a real weasel, <laughs> and he wanted me out. Uh, the mayor was an orthodontist, and who I learned enjoyed Coors Light beer. So I called and invited myself to his office after hours and brought a six-pack of that beer. And by the last one, we were on our way to a really fabulous friendship and relationship, and he was the first supporter of our industry that led to the expansion and, and a new hotel in San Antonio. Phoenix was a little bit less political. It has uh, far fewer long-term power brokers there in play because it's such a transient community, Arizona. A lot of people from Arizona came from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So very few of its governors were even born there. It's more of a meritocracy with easier access to top legislators. So our funding model for the $300 million request to match the City of Phoenix is $300 million that was an election that was enabled. 
our funding mechanism in the Arizona legislature for $300 million, the last $300 million, was hijacked by the Arizona state system using the same formula and asking for the same monies. And we learned of that in advance, so we were able to actually both end up with success in the, in the first year we asked for it. So our trick pony was that we could lure future Super Bowls and Final Fours with a shiny new convention center. So it was kind of hard to explain what new delegates and why we needed to spend it. So we inserted the sports, the mega events, and actually the Phoenix area delegation itself was very resistant to building this convention center. So we went around them. We went mm-hmm. to the Tucson Democrats, uh, Gabby Giffords, and the rural Republican ranchers, and the powerful beverage distributors of beer and soda water. Yeah. And we took the Wayne Chapel illustration, the Wayne Chapel logic, you know, cattle, sodas, and beer, and chickens marching into a new convention center that we talked about in Baltimore that Wayne had come up with many years ago in there in the 70s and found that to be a useful tool to talk about consumption versus trying to explain how many new delegates would come in and how much money would go to the economy. We had to really relate it to their personal careers. But I would say that, you know, elected officials have the same fears in job security and making people happy. They have the same thing we do, and and they seek and need advocates just like we do. And if they see fear and hesitancy in you, they'll sometimes take advantage of that. Yeah. So you just need to be strong in your beliefs and know it to be obviously confident, but open-minded as to how they end up going around helping you. The Speaker of the House, the late Jake Flake, didn't want the convention center. So we simply asked him to do us a favor. If we could get someone to delay sine die and move to motion sine die and keep it open, would he allow a motion to the floor? That would enable us to then call for a vote on the center. He did do that. And that, that enabled us to actually get the $300 million that evening. Wow. So being ready, you have to anticipate which legislature, which key committee, which city council member, perhaps even a board member, what are they looking at, what do they need, and being ahead of that. And, and nine times out of ten, you don't end up needing to use it, but the fact that you were prepared puts you in a situation that keeps you that way all the time. For those that are not aware of the Wayne Chapel story, and uh, it was great to see him inducted into the Hall of Fame at Destinations International in Baltimore this year, but Wayne was trying to get a convention center that was going to be a state-funded convention center in Maryland when he was in Baltimore, and uh, you know his headcount going in with the 20 senators was 19 to 1 against that only Baltimore City wanted it, and he really innovatively figured out that Maryland is one of the largest chicken producing states in the country. In fact, there is a chicken production factory in every single county. And so to your point, he said, you know, what do you eat at convention centers? Chicken. So if we build this convention center, the plant in your county is going to do more production and make more money. And pretty soon it was almost a unanimous vote. And the illustration he did of chickens marching into the convention center was priceless, and we all remember it. And Wayne says he's going to dig it up and send it to us. Oh, that's great. But it's the same thing. We use the auto dealers in San Antonio to get our convention center expansion. These people buy the most ink auto dealers. They buy the most roadblock TV spots. And when the newspaper came out against it, we were convinced the automobile dealers locally that they would have permanent dates in the convention center for the next 10, 15 years if they would support us. And they came out and basically just said, hey, if you don't want to support the convention center, we're going to take our advertising to the television stations. And so that worked wow. for us in San Antonio. So 
yes, you always uh, wear thinking who can be your ally. But in Phoenix, yeah. you know, we, we also maintained two lobbyists. One was official and the other one was not a registered lobbyist, but was someone that provided a lot of intel to me, Bill, city council mm-hmm. friends, city manager, you know, so we were the first to get a heads up on many things in, in, in San Antonio and Phoenix. And our CVB came out with the staff and all of us hitting a lot of home runs early on with getting them 300 million and then getting the convention center going and getting the hotel permission and the ground broken all in the first year and it very on early and getting the first Super Bowl booked in 2003. <clears throat> so our organization had very early created some credibility for our organization. So it allowed us, you know, coming in with some big splashes early on to continue to do things that we needed with our partners in the community. So you've obviously had a hand in building some of the country's biggest and best venues. I mean, the list in your bio of the number of Super Bowls and NBA championships and all-star games, I mean, it's just, it's dizzying to think of the venues that you've had a hand in building. And yet in our call to discuss this episode, you suggested that the days of building the really big stuff at the rate that we all did over the past few decades, you think it's coming to a close. So if that is the case, Share with us your thoughts. Where should we turn our attention if we're going to continue to try to develop our destinations? Well, thank you, Bill. First of all, there's going to be some exceptions and people listening were saying, wait a minute, what about Savannah? They got a big one going on. Right. Orlando's probably coming up next with a little bit. I can see expansions again, additions in Anaheim, Denver, and Nashville. But the longer this pandemic and office workforce disruption continues, the longer it's going to take for large trade show attendance to recover. And I think the bond rating agencies... And some of those things are going to be a little harder to put up subordinate debt and look at funding. I think what you're going to see is renovations versus major expansions and certainly major initial projects themselves. That's where I was going with that. So first mm-hmm. of all, top of mind is that while they're not going to probably build any big, big mega two and a half million square feet facilities again for a while, I think it's top of mind that your convention destinations will still need to very aggressively book the facilities that you have as well as the hotels and resorts. And particularly in the latter, the hotel and resorts, Mm -hmm. they've lost a lot of talent, Bill. They've lost a lot of people in the hotel industry. And a lot of them are not coming back. And so those hotels and resorts are gonna lean very heavily on DMOs moving forward. So that's one key, is that the hotels are gonna be really paying a lot more attention to CBDs now, and a lot more dependent upon uh, direct line and getting in there and helping them a little bit more. We'll go in a little more detail on that later. But remember, those destinations that do have convention centers, and there are many, 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 and, of course, the new one they're doing because of the great work of Joe Marinelli and Savannah, you're going to really need to be on top of your game to book those and continue doing so. And I, I know they will when the industry gets back. But moving on to what I think DMOs are going to be looking to be called upon, and I believe Destinations International is way ahead of this, and they've been providing some very amazing education and sharing of best practices in the space of community shared values, you know, such as placemaking in myriad neighborhoods. Look what Al Hutchinson and the CBD there have done with embracing over 200 neighborhoods in Baltimore, elevating their awareness for visitors, public spaces for visitors and locals, you know, especially experiences in places valued by the younger coming generations. Things for recreation and rejuvenation, you know, trails, outdoor concerts, you know, where the children and the pets can get together too. Uh, more engagement in the community dialogue of master planning, 
and what it is our communities want to be. And so the future study that DI launched a long time ago and is updated again, the future studies in concert with cities, I believe is very relevant and very now. Go back and what communities want to do post-pandemic. And the DMOs were very powerful, very elevated in a presence during the pandemic. And a lot of the communities really came out with a lot of great renewed respect for the CVBs because we all did more than just pivot. But I think that role is going to continue. And I think you're going to play a role as a mix as a DMO in the development of things like mixed use space for live work play, you know, using tax incentives with combination of quality of life bonds. I believe mm-hmm. when you look at placemaking in space and where people want to congregate in the community, I believe the DMOs will have a lot more to say and be involved at that conversation. I believe they'll continue to promote what the businesses lean on to recruit out of town talent. I mean, the visitor industry is the front door to economic development. Right. Visitor assets and product are what people do on weekends that live in a community. Uh, when you see companies recruiting people to Arizona or Phoenix, they really speak about the visitor assets as quality of life. And so I believe that ball, that mantra, has been handed off even more solidly to DMOs during the pandemic because the cities were struggling to service the citizens of the most needy to mandate when you could and could not wear a mask, when you could come in and come out. And all this while, DMOs kept providing the beacon of hope for every community. Every one of them did. I've never so proud of an industry as to see what DMOs did these past 18 months. Oh, I know. And stepping up and leading in the community is recognized, it's valued, and I can assure you that mayors and city managers around the country have got a whole new look and a whole new renewed respect for CBBs and DMOs. So I believe the things like going out and and creating public relation vignettes for little neighborhoods, going out and helping hotels with a two-minute video to help sell their product out there, going to the economic community and finding out what the CBB can also co-promote Uh, Back in Phoenix, they have a social media audience of almost a half million now. And that's a community, and a good bit of those live in the Phoenix area. So they've got an audience Mm -hmm. outside and inside within the community, and they own assets. Every CBB owns assets, a broadcast with its website, its advertising, its social media, and everything that are going to be very, very vital to a community sooner than later recovery from what we're going through. So I I believe the seat at the table is going to get bigger. I agree with you that I think the days, with the exceptions of the expansions in Savannah and other places, but you know, starting fresh, you know, starting from scratch, most of the big stuff's there. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is also an opportunity. I mean, rather than, than hang our heads and say, well, you know, this is probably not the time to build a $600 million convention center or arena or whatever it's going to be. I think dedicating ourselves to just what you said, the placemaking, the wayfinding signage, those are much easier to get support for and fund than a multi-hundred million dollar something. And so we should stay in the game and we should build our resume of being the ones that help lead the community to this is going to be great for residents and it's going to attract visitors. And when the time comes, and it very well may come in a decade or so, that we're back to building big stuff, then we'll have the cred to be at the forefront of that argument and not just a participant. There's no question. Because you know what I found out? I found out throughout my career 
that chambers of commerces and mayors of cities don't know each other. They don't have the collegial familiarization and relationships within their industry that we do at DI. Yeah. The only one that has this is the NCA and maybe the NFL, but it's rare. And that network and that ability for a DMO to bring in outside audiences, outside eyeballs, outside media coverage that they can share with their fellow stakeholders and citizens and civic leaders is going to be incredible because the CVB is the only one really that's good at that. And they're really quick on their feet and they know what visitors like and typically what visitors like locals will like as well. And you just nailed it on the head. It's live, work, play, residential mixture of this, that, a downtown Phoenix Inc., your downtown association, they already are leaning on DMOs. And that's the clarion call that CVBs can respond. That's the bell they can answer and lead with it. And that's a huge value to a community. And that's coming up in the future. And you're right. It is all about relationships. In my time in Madison, we had a 20-member city council. Three would oppose anything that we wanted. And we knew that. But at the same time, and it was a different era, let's be honest, but we'd go out for drinks. I mean, we were still collegial friends, even though we disagreed on big issues. That's tougher to do, I think, today than it was back in the 90s. Bill, with authenticity comes trust. And you always kept your community at the top of mind. And that's why they knew you. That's why they trusted you. So question number three, the Houston CVB was literally a training ground for dozens of DMO professionals, many of whom became CEOs. I mean, Greg Ortel, Wayne Chappell, Jim Smither, Jordy Tollett, Melvin Tennant, Jim Garrett, the list goes on. I don't think that that can be said for any other destination marketing organization in this country. What was the secret sauce in Houston? Probably humidity. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Chet Wilkins, Jimmy D4, Jimmy went on to run the McCormick Center in Chicago. He ran the New Orleans Convention Center. Leonard Rolston, Don Vaughn, who came from Don Freeman's company, Freeman Company. Mark Henry, the late Mark Henry, ran the Bureau once. Lois Woods. I don't think that could be said about any other DMO. I know George Kirkland was really a a great leader as well in, in creating a farm club. But we were blessed to learn at the feet of giants. Uh, certainly I was. You could imagine just walking down the hall, you want to talk to Jim Smither or Wayne Chapel or Mark Henry. Even Pete Batchelor was there. People will know who he is. We had no money. We had no budget. So we had to become very, very inventive. They were great salespeople who had to outwork the competition. Other cities kind of looked down on Houston at the time. So we embraced that blue-collar work ethic. You know, we did it with a fun attitude. Keep in mind, the Astrodome, which is built, and nobody else did anything like that at the beginning, was built with a huge opening in the back of the center field and a wall so that large conventions and trade shows could come in. That was invented in Houston in the 60s. Don Vaughn had a lot to do with that. We made deals with Continental Airlines, an airline back then that nobody wanted to fly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We said, hey, Houston's not a great visitor destination. Not a lot of people want to fly your airline. Let's get together and make a a major working agreement so we can get these things done. And so we literally used Continental Airlines and created a lot of uh, fly-ins and did some things that were kind of unheard of at the time. But it was a work ethic, a fun work ethic. We knew Houston was a great place to live and be, but it, it just didn't have 
the cachet of a New Orleans and Chicago and things like that. It's the greatest can-do city. This is a city that built a port in 1919, 50 miles inland, became the third largest port in the world. It has world-renowned heart surgeons. Uh, NASA, first words on the moon, the Astrodome, it's the oil capital of the world. Yeah, Three U.S. Right. presidents came from its soil. Its government expected great results from its CVB. We didn't get a lot of funds from them, but what they expected from us was tremendous. So we just rolled up our sleeves and went at it and had a ball doing it. And again, I learned from the greatest mentors in that era during that time. Uh, today, Houston's still a very happy place to live. And Bill, there's only three other cities in the country that have more people living in it. So there's something great going on in that community. And, and they're doing wonderful things now in the convention space and Super Bowls and many events. And, you know, we go back to sports and sometimes you have to do these things like Super Bowls and all that to get people's attention, to get everyone to want a Super Bowl, to want a Final Four is a lot easier sometimes than getting everyone to want a convention center expansion. So that's why we did a lot of things in the sports space. It wasn't our day job. It was what we did. But our day job were conventions yeah. and visitors and the things that we live by on a daily basis. But you had to hit these big events to get the attention of the people. And that's why you saw so much activity in the sports world in all these cities is to lure the interest because it takes a facility to pull off a Super Bowl, to pull off a Final Four. And we led with that because it had a lot more appeal. We learned that in Houston. So in Houston, there had to be also something, you know, in the water or in the humidity, if you will, that caused so many of you to realize that, yeah, this is a great city and we're having a great time marketing and selling this city, but I want to go off and I want to lead a destination marketing somewhere else. And you told me during our prep call that kind of, you don't do it physically because it would be rude, but you kind of shake your head mentally when someone thinks they want to be the CEO because they have no idea of what it's like, as you said, to be the pilot in the cockpit. The pilots know way more about what's out there that would scare the shit out of most of us. <laughs> and that's the job of the CEO. And we can't always tell our staff no. what's going on. What would your words be to anybody who aspires to the big chair? Well, just imagine if you got off an airplane, the pilot was standing there and said, for, hey, we should have seen that flock of geese we just missed. Oh, my God, I couldn't believe that skydiver almost hit the cockpit. Or, <laughs> well, that plane was out of lane. You know, we almost got killed three times in this last two and a half hours. Uh, no one would get back on that plane. Right. We have to keep things and meteors from hitting the office. And it truly would scare a lot of the staff if they knew what all happened. Uh, I'll never forget the wide eyes of hundreds of staff over the years when I would quietly have to pull them in and tell them what was going on at City Hall and that we were avoiding it. It's something like being in Alaska and you're hiding under the shelter hoping the bear moves on, right? right. Sometimes you hide and sometimes you get out there and you, you, you get him to go somewhere else. But most of what a CEO does really goes unnoticed and for a good reason. If mm -hmm. you don't hear about it or you don't read about it, the chances are the CEO kept something from happening. And so when you start reading about something, it's almost too late to put it back in the can. A CEO who I believe is going to be a good one is going to have to be, again, cognizant of what can happen, know how to ask the right questions, know down the street. City staff who typically manage a CVB's contract, unless they're a TMID, cannot tell you everything because they can't tell you before city council is told. 
And oftentimes city council isn't told until Friday yeah. afternoon. So you often will get these Friday afternoon phone calls when you have less than a half hour to do anything about it. And so that's just the way the industry is. You've got to be ahead of the bad news, fix it, come up with the scenarios and try to keep the staff focused on what they do. And, and yeah, I shake my head a little bit because a lot of people, you can't tell them, Bill. It's really kind of frustrating because sometimes you want to tell them and you can't tell them everything because sure enough, it's going to be on a tweet or somebody's going to say something to somebody. And the only way to keep a secret is to keep it between two people. And oftentimes, if you're going to win something, you can't tell anybody until it's done. If you're going to lose something, you got to go stop it before you lose it. It's, yeah. it's frustrating for CEOs because you really can't tell everything. Your job is to keep them safe. Uh, you have to keep them employed. You have to not ruin their day with sharing some news that perhaps it's going to be something that's unsettling. It's not their job to fix. So oftentimes you, you go do it and you may be a little grumpy that day, <laughs> but you just can't really tell them everything. Yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, and it can be very, very lonely at the top. So time for your bonus round. In 1979, you took a four-month leave of absence from Houston when you were recruited to serve as the technical advisor and dialogue coach on the motion picture Middle-Aged Crazy that starred Bruce Dern <laughs> and Anne margaret Tell us what that experience was like, and if I go back to watch that movie again, well, I find that Bruce sounds like you. No, not at all. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, working with directors and directors of photography and art directors for like 11 years. Uh, God, Peter Bogdan, a lot of people. It spoiled my eye, Bill, as to framing photography, yeah. particularly for a destination for collateral. And it really left me with the same demands and curiosity in promoting three destinations in my career. And I drove staff crazy. You know, because I blocked shots and looked at stuff. And my job was selling a destination to motion picture directors and producers in L.A. in their studio with photography that we had taken. But anyway, driving marketing crazy, you know, that's uh, throughout my career is one, one thing. But Bruce Stern is truly a renaissance man. He's brilliant. We never got his accent down. He later admitted on The Tonight Show that he had sandbagged it. Oh, no, really? Well, you always seek a voice for somebody. When you're trying to help someone, you seek a voice and say, well, don't emulate mine. Let's, let's find someone that has the same timbre as you, that has the same beat as you, almost the same voice. And that was uh, in the person of the first cousin of mine. And I got them together. And Bruce really enjoyed it and tried to emulate it. I really got to really enjoy working with him. We teased each other a lot. His little daughter, Laura, Laura Dern then was 13 years old, right? She's bigger than he ever was. She was hanging around location for six, seven oh, really? weeks. Yeah. Who could have known? But he was in all professional sports. So I got him around people like Joe Necro and Dan Pastorini to first earn a little cred with him early on so he'd listen, and then to listen to their speech. But this was a man who shot John Wayne, remember? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was more concerned about nailing a romantic lead role than he was about getting the accent down. So this was the first time Bruce Dern was was in a romantic lead. Uh, again, he's been all these Westerns and the bad guy snarled at you through the bars of the jail. And again, the one that shot John Wayne. And he used to joke that after shooting John Wayne on the screen, he couldn't get hired for six months. <laughs> and a romantic lead with <laughs> one of the biggest stars of the day, Anne Margaret. That had to be disconcerting, to say the least. I mean, that's you can't flub that, right? 
No, but yeah, and, and again, being opposite of her, but uh, she and both Roger Smith were very sweet, very private people. I'll relate a thing. We were at a funeral home in a, a scene where the father of the, in the movie had died at the funeral home, and she's out in the limousine ready to come into her life. She's very nervous, and I was holding a, a little child that was visiting the set. It was my niece, and she rolled the window down and asked me to come over, and she said, can I meet your niece, little Holly? Can I talk to her and hold her? I said, absolutely. So she spent a little time with her. And then before she went in, she said to me, she says, you know, I grew up in a funeral home in Sweden. And I get very nervous when I'm going into this funeral home here to do a scene. And it was really sweet. Uh, revealed that and got her act together and went in there. And obviously, she's just a dynamic personality. And uh, she's just exactly like you see on television. Very outgoing, very sweet, very humble. But again, uh, just a tremendous actress and, and, and really good person. And uh, yeah, they stayed in touch for a while. So it was uh, it wasn't just uh, hey, we move on, you know. Yeah, what a great experience! And you've got so many. Uh, we we could do a couple hours of bonus round, I'm sure, uh, talking with all the the moments in your career where you've uh, brushed up against really amazing people that have done really cool things. And so. You know, Bill, people don't think these life experiences and places that a DMO career puts us into, they're totally amazing, and they're just not really easy for people to believe, you know? And so it's kind of funny that we joke uh, that all of us folks that ran as CEOs of DI are going to have to end up living together in, in our retirement homes because nobody that lives there is going to believe what we did. None of them. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Steve, there are few, if any, who have given as much back to the DMO sector and Destinations International through all of its iterations. I'm pretty sure that you're going to be first ballot Hall of Fame inductee next year when Destinations International reconvenes. Again, thank you for, A, coming on the show, but most importantly, thanks for all you've done for so many of us. Thank you, Bill, and thank you so much for what you do for DI. It's just tremendous. Well, we appreciate it. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, 26Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies. You can find them at 26Digital.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, our book destination leadership, plus links to the Z News, the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.